0: For those that are of high school age and younger, you may not have heard of the TV show, let alone watched the TV show ER. Um, but this was all the rage when I was in, when we were in college, and I guess going out of high school into college and beyond there. But first aired in the mid-90s. It ran, I think, for about 15 years. And this is where George Clooney got his big breakthrough, so that's, I think, probably the biggest uh, happening out of that. It was a good show, but it, but it was obviously about an emergency room. So the doors of the hospital would burst open and some guy would be rolled in on a gurney and there would be blood spurting everywhere. And you know they would, and they'd, they'd, they'd work quickly and the doctors would scramble around and stitch him up or get the bullet out or, or amputate or whatever they had to do to, to triage and to fix this, this patient that came into the E.R., and and so it was this frantic. There were always these frantic scenes. Of course, there was the drama and the people, all that stuff. But but that was kind of the essence of it. It was this. It was charged with drama and excitement because it's an emergency room. That's that's what it is. You 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 never know what crisis is about to come through the door in an ER. I don't think that a show, for instance, to compare it. I don't think a show about an orthopedic surgeon would be quite as exciting to watch or as have as high a ratings. Uh, nothing against orthopedic surgeons if you're out there today. I'm thankful for your work. But uh, why? Because it, the work of a surgeon is very different from an doc, ER doctor. Um, a surgeon is an initiator. A surgeon decides in advance what needs to be done with the patient and schedules those procedures well in advance. Um, a surgeon, you know, Draws the line and makes the cut and does what needs to be done, knows what needs to be done and does it. Um, the ER doctor, on the other hand, is a responder. He, 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 it's, it's quick, it's, it's split second decisions. He's reacting to whatever tragedy comes through that door. He doesn't know what's next. He's simply trying to just kind of control and manage the chaos of of that, um, that area of the hospital, trying to keep people from dying, basically, and that emergency care. But this is, I say all that to get to this point. is I suspect that, that many people have a view of God that sees him as an ER doctor. That, they, they, that he's scrambling around and, and the, the mess that is our alive just comes kind of bursting through the doors and, and he's frantically working to stop the bleeding and, and to, to do what has to be done to keep us alive and to keep us from falling apart. And so this tragedy just comes in and he, he's just trying to make the most he can of the situation and just manage the chaos that is the ups and downs of our lives. Dealing with those major issues that have to be addressed immediately. Just responding, tragedies, emergencies of life. That, that may be how some of you even view God. And, but the book of Ruth, if you've been with us through this series, it's shown us that that is not how God is. Uh, the Lord is, is, in reality, he's not an ER doctor who's reacting to, to the tragedies of life, trying to make the most of them. He's a skillful surgeon. And, and he, he puts the scalpel of his grace to our lives. And he makes, he makes very careful incisions that sometimes do cause pain in our lives, but they're for our healing. That's, that's our God. That's how, that's how he works. He is very purposeful in what he does in that surgical work. He's not a responder. He's an initiator. And if we've seen nothing else about the Lord through Ruth, if we've seen that, this is how he is in in a sovereign sovereign providence, making careful incisions, working all the details of life, no matter how painful they are, working them out for our good and for His glory. And or, or you could say we've used this analogy: He's an artist. He's 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 uh, taking your life and mine, weaving them into this tapestry that is His eternal redemptive purpose and plan, this larger story, and taking our lives, and skillfully weaving them together in that story. Sometimes things are painful, aren't they? Sometimes sometimes things don't make any sense to us. And we don't understand any reason, any possible reason for this. It looks like chaos. Our lives, the lives around us, it looks chaotic. But the book of Ruth teaches us once and for all that God is in control of your life and of mine. He, he is, He is the surgeon. He is not... The emergency room doctor. He's busy about the work of making beauty from ashes. He's always involved in it, and so this morning we'll we'll finish this 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 wonderful little story of Ruth, and and it ends though in a way that really grabs us. It, it gets our attention, and this is just a masterful book. I mean, from beginning to end. But I love the way it ends, and that it 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 satisfies us, but it keeps us wanting for more. We want to read the next book in the series. That's how it ends. It ends with the name David. So we're left anticipating. And so it's like the work of a skilled novelist. You get to the end of the book and you're, oh, that's just masterful the way it all came together and plot and I'm satisfied with how this book concludes, but I can't wait to see what's next. I can't wait to see the next book. i got to read it. And that's, that's that's the book of Ruth. We're, and we're privileged to know what comes next. We're looking back on this and we see the progression of God's redemptive story up to where we are today and there's more to come. But uh, but but we get to see it in, in a larger scale. And so I, I've enjoyed this story. I don't think it's uh, a trite thing to say that, to that we enjoy a book of the Bible like this. I I think some of you have expressed that. I hope you've been helped by it. I, I, I have been helped. I am helped even going into this Advent season. This was part of the purpose of doing Ruth before uh, we, we celebrate Christmas together. And by having looked at this, my excitement over the son of David that, will be, that, that was born in Bethlehem is, is, is grown as I've been looking, as we've been looking at the story of this great uh, grandfather, uh, this grandfather of David. It was born in Bethlehem. And so I hope the same is true for you. So we get this finally. We get to see this baby born in Bethlehem. We left off last week um, in chapter four. We had we have uh, Boaz and Ruth finally officially being joined together. They're engaged. That's where we left off. So Ruth, or, or excuse me, Boaz is given the go ahead to redeem Naomi's land, to redeem Ruth as his wife, and that's where we pick it up where Van started reading in verse 11. So let's back up there. Look at me, Ruth, chapter four, verse eleven. Then all the people who were at the gate, all the bystanders, just people walking around, friends, family members, neighbors, just people of the city, and then all of the elders that were there as witnesses. They 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 all gathered there, and the elders said, "We are witnesses." And and so they they this makes it official. And then these witnesses, they 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 issue this divine invoke this divine blessing upon this union of Ruth and Boaz. And so that's what follows. Any, any good that's going to come out of this marriage is going to be of the Lord. So they're looking to God for help. And they first address the bride in verse 11. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Now, again, we... Don't miss a little subtlety here, but Ruth has most often been referred through the book of Ruth as the Moabite, um, the foreigner. Uh, So so that's how she's been viewed throughout this. The girl, the servant, that's how she refers to herself. But here, she's the woman, she's the wife. That same word, woman or wife. And her name is placed alongside the founding mothers of Israel. Rachel and Leah, this is beauty for ashes. We're getting to see it unfold here. And, and so they're praying, and, and they can already see that Ruth's introduction into Israel has this eternal significance. That's what they're, that's what they're doing by invoking this blessing upon, upon Ruth. And then they have a wish for Boaz. They look to the Lord and, and say to him, May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. May you have a good reputation and honor and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And what does that mean? And so what, what do we, what's about Perez? Well, Perez is the clan that Boaz came from, and probably most people in that, in that audience. Those people, that's, that, that was their clan. That was where most of the Bethlehemites came from, the clan of Perez. And, and that clan... For unknown reasons, really, it bypassed other clans in terms of preeminence among all the clans in the tribe of Judah, and and so it's an interesting history there. And you go back to Genesis chapter thirty-eight to read about Perez's birth, and it's it's interesting and it's very scandalous. I'll just say that. Uh, so so Perez was one of two twin. He was the older of two twin boys, and and um, and since Judah uh, refused to give Tamar his youngest son in marriage. Tamar um, dressed herself as a prostitute. And Judah um, went into her and they conceived and bore a son, uh, two sons actually, Perez and Zerah. And so she became pregnant by unsuspecting Judah and had these two boys and so that's strange and scandalous, but then the, the, the birth is as, is as strange as the conception. Because if this is the story, if you remember, his, his brother, Zerah, is coming out first. And it, you remember, the firstborn is a big deal. So his brother, Zerah, sticks his arm out of the, of the womb, and they tie a little red string. The midwife ties a red string around his hand because that's the firstborn. And then it's like somebody pulled his arm back in, and little Perez is the one who comes out first. Strange, I know, <laughs> but that's and that's what his name. Is. So they named him Perez, which means breaking out, it's like or breach. It's a, he's coming out first, and that really kind of defined, that forecast his life and his clan. They were they had this this jumping ahead in terms of preeminence. They were a preeminent clan in the tribe of Judah, and so they're saying to Boaz, May your May your descendants be like those of Perez. May you gain prominence. How will, you, how will he gain prominence? Because of the offspring that the Lord will give you, verse 12, by this young woman. The the, the hope of prominence for Boaz is tied to descendants. He's got to have descendants. And, the, and, the, and that's the last little bit of suspense in the story of Ruth. Now, we just read to the end, so you know what's coming. But, but remember, Ruth was married 10 years did not, was not able to conceive and bear a, son, a child so we're left wondering is she buried but these witnesses are confident that future generations will come from this union and so this, they're invoking this so the people of Bethlehem they plead with God to open the womb of Ruth and, and allow her to have sons so they can have descendants and that brings us to the happy conclusion in verse 13 this is really the pivotal verse and, and, and we see this this wonderful scene here in verse thirteen. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. That's a very, very terse summary of a lot that transpires there, isn't it? The narrator's just making quick work here. It all, it all happened. Everything kind of came to conclusion in a verse. And so, so the, again, this is final scene brings us to a conclusion. We have this baby, and this baby does two things, and that's what we'll see in the story. The first thing the baby does, the, the baby born in Bethlehem brought hope and help to people in need. He brought hope and help to people in need in this story, and we'll see that and how. So, he makes this, again, this quick transition. Boaz and Ruth are now husband and wife in every sense. And the the suspenseful question that we left off with last week, will she she be able to have a son? Is she barren? Well, it's answered this week, sort of. And we don't know. She may have been barren, but the Lord worked to open her womb, or, or whether she was not, we don't know. But she's able to conceive. And so one of the things this shows us here is, listen, God is sovereign over marriage and conception. He is sovereign over that. He's sovereign over over marriage and children. Uh, Now verse 13, as we read that that quick summary, it doesn't doesn't really mean much unless you remember chapter 1 and what the situation was. Ruth, who became a widow in chapter 1, now is a wife again in chapter 4. And who's done this? God. God. God is the one who provided a husband for her. Ruth, who was unable to bear a child in chapter 1, now has a child in chapter 4. Why? Because God gave her conception. God's rule extends over marriage. It does. If you're married here today, you're married because of the sovereign providence of God. And, 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 God is sovereign over who you're married to. The person you're married to is your spouse by divine decree. If you're single, at this stage in your life, uh, you're single because God is sovereignly determined that you be single. Um, that doesn't mean that that, that that is a lifelong decree for you to experience. You, there may be someone waiting right around the corner. And and there's nothing wrong to pray for that, with praying for that. But the fact is, God is sovereign over whether we're married or single. And He's sovereign over who we're married to. Now listen to me. I, I don't say that tritely or to be insensitive to some of you. Because for some of you, I know that is a hard pill to swallow. Um, I... Some of you maybe are in very difficult marriages. Maybe you're married to an unbeliever. And, and, and maybe the marriage is difficult because you have a very difficult spouse. Um, some of you are divorced. And so, so I, I'm not saying this flippantly or carelessly, but, but this, is, this is true. Whatever station of life you're in right now, we can say it's, by, it's part of God's plan. Um, that, is, that does not in any way, and we've seen this throughout Ruth, that does not make us less accountable for our actions, to say that. God holds us accountable for our decisions. God holds others accountable for decisions that they make which affect us. And so moral responsibility can't be dodged by an understanding of divine, of divine sovereignty. That's not the point. Some of you have made bad decisions, just like I have. Some of you have to live with the awful effects of horrible decisions that were made by others. Some of you have, have divorced on biblical grounds. And, and so we have all these different variety of circumstances. But again, whatever, wherever you're at, it's because God has decreed it for now. That doesn't eliminate accountability. It doesn't eliminate your will, your free will. It doesn't, it doesn't eliminate your responsibility to make wise decisions and, and, and doesn't Lower God's standards; it doesn't do any of that. But but you are where you are right now because God is sovereign over marriage. His sovereignty is over that, and we see that clearly. Second, God God's rule extends over conception and childbirth. That God, the ESV translates this very literally. God gave Ruth conception. He gave her conception. It's God who opens the womb. It's God who closes the womb. And, 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 that, and some of us, you, you, you wrestle with maybe some very bitter questions that, that are unanswered for you and, and because of your situation in life. Infertility is a very painful form of loss. And some of you know this well. Some of you have family members and friends who know this very well. Some of you experience this, and it's very difficult to understand and for others to even understand. Um, others of you have lost children. Um, some of you have children with special needs that you would never have anticipated. And, but I would say, and some of you, you just feel over completely overwhelmed by the perfectly healthy children you do have. And that's, we can all understand that. But however your family is made up, listen, this is God's plan A for you. This is the best scenario. In God's eternal wisdom and goodness, this is His best for you. So believe that, brothers and sisters. There's wisdom, there's goodness, there's love that is part of God's decree and His ordering of your life and where you are right now. Children are gifts from God. And they are not merely the products of human sexuality. That's not it. The baby born in Bethlehem is derived from divine initiative. This is God's doing. And, and it's pretty obvious that this baby's birth, and as we see it in the story Ruth, it's pointing to something, something special that lay ahead. There is this, there's this, divine, uh, this divine destiny that's kind of the shadow that's cast across this, this boy. But listen, God's sovereignty extends over every conception and birth. Even those in this flock, God gives us the children we have. At this point, um, it's interesting because Ruth's role in the story ends. We we will see nothing of her. She steps aside. the The spotlight's going to shift to Naomi. It's gonna we're gonna see Naomi in her living room, basically, to the end until the narrator. Comes back and gives us his genealogy. We, we think it should be about Ruth and Boaz at the end. They're the ones we've been rooting for the whole time here. We've been anticipating that. But it doesn't. At the end, it's, it's Naomi. That's the focus. Just like how the book began. And, and it's, it's focused on that, that God making beauty, giving beauty for ashes in Naomi's life. So verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, the same women who, when Naomi came back from Bethlehem, you remember, and she was utterly destitute, they they looked at her and they, and they couldn't even recognize her. And so they asked, is this Naomi? She looks, she looks awful. She's been through so much. And, and it's the same women that listened to her bitter complaint against the Lord for His hand that had been against her. So these same women now, though, they they say to Say to her and with her. Blessed be the Lord. Praise Yahweh. Who has not left you this day. Without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned. In Israel. Let we just stop. There is something we we learn. About the the view. The perspective. The world view of these women. And and what they say here. They have this, this God entranced. View of the world. And. And. And so they look at Naomi now. They look at the fact that now she has a redeemer. They looked at the fact that everything that was lost is now restored. And they don't say, what luck, Naomi. What good fortune. It's karma. You beat the odds. No, what do they say? They say, praise Yahweh. Praise the Lord. This is God's doing. He did it. That reflects a worldview that, that doesn't see God at, at a distance. But, but he's intimately involved in all the details of life. And, and he's working to make beauty for, give beauty for ashes. He's involved in it. He's moving and arranging the details of our life. Working for our good. And they point to God and they say, it was him. Praise you, Lord. And so so when the dark and frowning providences come, and when the smiling providences come, we can say, the hand of the Lord has gone against me, and blessed be the Lord, he's done it. Can you say that? Some of you think that the good stuff comes from God, and the bad stuff comes from the devil. That is not a biblical worldview. The biblical worldview says, again, his hand has gone forth against me, And blessed be the Lord, you've done it. That's what these women express. So look at what they praise the Lord for. They say, Naomi now has a redeemer. Now who's the redeemer? Who's been the redeemer throughout the story so far? Boaz. So when you get to chapter 4 and you read about a redeemer who's going to be renowned throughout Israel, who are we thinking about? We're thinking about Boaz. That's who I'm thinking about. But is it Boaz? Look at it very carefully. But words matter, folks, as you read the Bible. Pay attention to little words. Blessed be the Lord, look at it with me, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name, the Redeemer's name, be renowned in Israel. He, the Redeemer, shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more is more to you than seven sons has given birth to Him, your Redeemer. So the women gather around Naomi. They look at this little baby boy and they say, Blessed be the Lord. Look what God has done. He's not left you without a Redeemer today. And He's sucking His thumb. The baby's the Redeemer. The baby is the one who reverses Naomi's destitution. He, and so they're praising the Lord for this kindness to Naomi. So, so God gives her this redeemer. And Naomi also now has a restore, secondly. Verse 15, he shall be to you a restore of life and a nourisher of your old age. Now there's no way we can possibly feel the gravity of this blessing of this child if we, if we don't see and sense the, the hardship of chapter 1. We don't feel that pain. Naomi lost a husband. Naomi lost two sons. She came back completely empty empty and destitute. But with all the darkness, all the pain, all the loss in the backdrop here, God has restored what she lost in this child. He, He has restored everything. But it's more goes beyond that. Not only has the child restored what she lost, but he will sustain her even in her old age. And I take that to mean, obviously, he's talking about, I think there's physical provision for, for Naomi as this, this boy grows up and he will provide for her needs. But I think it is more than that. I think it's sustaining her soul. It's, 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 this child is a means of, will be a means of constant joy and hope and encouragement for Naomi's soul. Now what assures Naomi of this—that this, that this child will care for her—is it—is it simply social obligation? Well, he has to. It's in the law. Is it just family ties? Well, there's connection, and so it's—it's it's, there's obligation. No, what is it? It's Ruth's deep affection for her. Look at what he says: "For your," these ladies, ladies say, "for your daughter-in-law, who loves you, is more to you than seven sons." who has more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Ruth loves you, Naomi. Has no idle accolade. That's that's not flattery. That is honest truth. And we have seen it throughout this book. We we saw it in in her costly commitment uh, to Ruth in chapter 1. We saw it in the initiative that she took when she came into Bethlehem and began gleaning right away. We saw it in her courage at the threshing floor in chapter 3. Ruth loves Naomi. And so the women say, "Do you want to know why God's blessed you like this, Naomi? It's because you have a wonderful daughter-in-law who loves you. I mean, it, it don't don't you wish all mothers-in-law and daughters-in-law had that kind of uh, relationship? This is a beautiful thing. And and then and there's that there's the Hebrew poetry that shows up. The seven sons, that's that represents a perfect family. Number seven and." Sons, this is, this is the ideal family. But this converted, pagan, Moabite girl is better. It's better. That's, that's a strong statement. Then comes one of the most picturesque verses in the whole book of Ruth. Verse 16. Ah, oh, this is a great, great image. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap. And became his nurse. What a moment. What a happy moment. Naomi holds her hope in her hands. This little, little word for child, it's, its in the Hebrew it's yeled. And, and it's child or lad. And it has kind of a broad meaning in terms of age. But, it, but the only other place it's used in Ruth is back in chapter 1, verse 5. And this is, this is pointing us back there. In chapter 1, verse 5, Naomi was grieving because of the death of her two Yeleds, her two lads, two children. Now here, this fragile Yeled snuggles peacefully in the arms of this gray-haired, gray-haired Naomi. <laughs> it's, again, beauty for ashes. What a scene. Naomi has more than she could have ever hoped for in this baby with her inner arms. John Piper wrote a poem based on the book of Ruth and there's a couple lines that I thought of as we're here. What we have lost, God will restore. When he has finished his art, which is the silent worship of the heart. When God creates a humble hush and makes Leviathan his brush, it won't be long before the rod Becomes the tender kiss of God. This is what we see. Did Naomi experience the rod? You better believe it. But but now she experiences this tender kiss of God. And she surrenders all of those unanswered bitter questions that she had before. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. God hope. Hope. Now. It, it, the word, the language here is is somewhat ambiguous. It's it's hard to decipher the precise relationship that Naomi has with this this child. Um, she becomes his nurse. Now it's not a wet nurse. That just means caregiver. She she guards the boy. She assumes some kind of semi parental responsibilities for young. Obed for the child's upbringing. You now, exactly how that worked is not very clear, but whatever the case, Naomi will play a significant role in the upbringing of this boy's life and in, in his nurture. And, and this boy will play a significant role in the care of Naomi as she goes on into the later years of life. And then, verse 17, and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. What? <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, to our Americanized ears, we hear like that. Like, hey, that doesn't sit right. Son has been born to Naomi. Um, wait a second. I think it was Ruth that went through all the labor <laughs> and carried that child, and and uh, uh, it seems that a son has been born to Ruth, not Naomi. Well, these women don't care about that because they say God's given Naomi a son, and and the child is legally a son. A grandson of Naomi, even though this little boy has no DNA from Naomi, because <laughs> remember Ruth is is kind of an adopted uh, daughter of Naomi's and and Boaz, but but she, she treats and she this this boy is as, as a son to her. Uh, this is all goes back to what we talked about with levirate marriage and all those regulations, but but again, Naomi she can't be happier. She's she's holding this little baby, taking her grandson, caring for him. She's she's raising him. She's on cloud nine. Life can't get any better. (laughs) But listen, as happy as she is, God is doing something more than making Naomi happy. (laughs) This is good, but that's not the whole story. He's preparing the way for his son, Jesus Christ, to come into this world, the one who will truly redeem Israel and redeem us. And the narrator, he can't wait to fill you in on the rest of the story. He is anxious because he won't wait till the end to, to kind of let us in on what's going to happen. Um, so he quickly broadens the focal point. So we, we see a simple, local story unfolding, and it's beautiful, and it's good, and it's exciting, but it's isolated. It's this little family, this little place, this little baby. These neighbors, so we see that, but there is more taking place, isn't there? <laughs> and, we, and we have to see things light of, of, in light of God's bigger, redemptive story. Listen, this is true for your life, too, and mine. There is always more taking place. Always. There is always more in your life going on than you can see. There's more than you could touch. There's more than you could figure out with your mind and understand. There's always more going on. He, God is is always doing more. He's He's figuring out things for generations to come. We just think small, local, me, immediate, now. God is executing His eternal purposes in our lives at all times. It's crazy. I just an, a way to illustrate this. We'll be with Brooks' family. uh, I guess next a week from now, we're going to be there. We're going back early this year for Christmas, so we'll be there. We'll we'll be there at uh, her family's ranch out in West Texas, and it's almost guaranteed that some point during the week we'll have steak, which I always look forward to. So, um, so good Texas beef, and and so I'll eat that steak and I'll say, oh, what a meal! That was good. But then, but then you can sit there and you can look outside and you can see cattle and then and then you you look and and you you see all that grass that they're eating, and then you look up and you see the sun that 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 allows that grass to grow, and then you look off in the distance and there may be clouds forming and you see this thunderstorm that you can see from you know thirty miles away. you can't do that here, I realize but but just imagine the possibility of seeing far because there are no trees. You see the thunder sound forming. Rain's coming, or snow possibly. It's gonna give nourishment to that grass. But so you see, there's more going on. The steak is good. And I, I enjoy that. But it's local, it's immediate. There's a bigger story happening to put that meat on the plate. And and there there are lots of things working together to give me that ribeye. Well, this, this is what we see. There, you, there's the stuff of your life, and you see God give beauty for ashes in very localized ways, and we give thanks, and that's, that's part of his plan, and it's good. But there is more going on, brothers and sisters. There's a bigger story happening. We're part of it. And, 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 and that's good, but we've got we to have eyes to see that bigger story, and Ruth allows us to kind of step back and see it. All right, well, let's, let's accelerate. Verse 17 and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name. Now, now that's weird, isn't it, too? <laughs> I don't think when Kara was born, we went and knocked on her neighbor's door and said, what should we call her? <laughs> or when we were living over here, we didn't talk to Cecil and Debbie and say, Katie, we, we, we got this child, what do you want to call her? And Cecil said, Katie. And so we went with that. No, that's not how it worked. Um, so, but the, but the women of the neighborhood, they gave him a name, and there's no other Old Testament examples of this, but. And they sang, a, na- a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. Obed means servant. It's one, one who works. And, and Obed will be a servant of Naomi. He will, he will provide for her in her old age. We'll come back to that name in a minute. But just as, just as we're savoring Naomi's sweet happiness here, the narrator just kind of suddenly steps forward again. And, and again, this, he's, he, he can't wait to get to this it gives us this surprise, this exclamation point to the story of Ruth. And it's in, in verse 17 there. This Obed, he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. He will become the, the grandfather of Israel's revered king. Who would have guessed when we started the this story? This, this Moabite immigrant would be part of that line. What an incredible gracious God who rewards those who seek refuge under his wings. And the narrative goes on. He, he goes on to list a ten generation genealogy. Now there are missing ancestors in the list. This is more representative than than comprehensive. Um, now and I know you you all love how many of you love reading genealogies? All right. Oh, you weirdos. Okay. No. No, I there is great good things in genealogies, but I don't find that's my favorite part of the Bible to read. I'll just say that. And uh, so I've been known to kind of scan and read quickly through parts of Second Chronicles. But if you skip this genealogy, and really any genealogy, you miss something important. Um, this is all inspired by God and profitable. And this is without you. We'll see it here. Verse 18. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab, Amenadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon. And I want you to stop there and you can hold your finger and root, but I want you to turn over to Matthew chapter 1, first chapter of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, Matthew 1 and look at me, verse 5, Matthew 1 verse 5 and we pick it up, the New Testament and it goes on. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. You know, you know what Ruth and Rahab have in common. They're both they're both neither of them are Israelites. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, the king. Now look down to verse 16. We're not going to read through all the names. Verse 16, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. This is a story. It goes on. So, so that's the second thing that this, this, this baby in Bethlehem, this localized story, it does. It points to this greater one who is to come. That's where we're left, that, that Naomi and Ruth and Boaz are ordinary people experiencing very ordinary events, yet it's through these ordinary people, these ordinary events that God is working out his eternal purpose. So imagine, you have this little mobile girl, she's going to the market, maybe she's going working in the field, some young man catches her eye. And, and, and a very ordinary, that, that's a very ordinary thing that happens, and catches her eye, they they marry and then another very ordinary but painful thing happens he dies and 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 yet she of her own volition goes with the grieving mother-in-law back to her hometown ordinary there's nothing extraordinary about any of those things and then she's out working in a different field and somebody catches her eye and he catches her she catches his eye and they marry Ordinary people, ordinary events, yet it's it's part and parcel to God's redemptive purpose, the story that he's writing. He's preparing the way for Christ in those ordinary things. He's doing marvelous things. This is how God works. We have this, in Ruth, this little sliver of time and circumstance that, that fits into this big story. And and. and You've you got to see this too because I, I don't want you to think that God is somehow just kind of sadistically and egotistically like he's ego an egomaniac and he's just there. And, and so he, 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 he's not simply working his purposes out through Ruth and Naomi and Boaz using them like uh, just little sacrificial pawns. That's not it. He, he, he is working things out for their good that it would be very sad if we were just tiny pieces of this big mosaic that God is just kind of randomly throwing together all for for the, that ultimate purpose of of his glory which is, it, is is the greatest purpose for anything but friends you you and I are little pieces in that mosaic but God has not randomly he's not randomly throwing it together. He is very purposefully arranging it all for his glory but the wonderful wonderful thing is he cares and loves every little tiny piece in the puzzle. He loves everyone. Ruth and Boaz not only fit into God's eternal purpose, but, but, but he works for their good. They weren't, again, throwaways. They, they were loved loyally, eternally, by God. And, and the God who works all things for their good. They lived out Romans 8.28 before Paul ever penned it. Sometimes... Our lives can stink. Just because you believe in the sovereignty of God, sovereignty of God and His caring providence doesn't mean that, that we can naively go through life pretending that pain doesn't exist. It's real. You have your stories, and you're going through some of that right now, some of you. Providence doesn't numb us from the pain of life, but it gives us grace to cope and to deal with the, the real challenges and struggles and sorrows of life. Some of you are still living under dark and frowning providences now. And 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 we've seen we've seen God take give beauty for ashes over the course of six weeks, and and we think, it's not happened to me in six weeks since we started this series. You've, you've failed, preacher. Um, I'm still in the ash heap. Still, still seem to be going down deeper, deeper, sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow. Little light. Humanly speaking. So you're struggling to believe God's covenant love and faithfulness to you. It's like God, you may, you, may, you wouldn't say it probably, but you, you may see God as an enemy who's just shooting arrows into you. And you say, you think, I hear you say that God is good, but it doesn't seem like he's good to me right now. But listen, if you belong to Jesus, God is for you even through the dark and frowning providences, you can rest assured that God is always working, only working for your good. He's not turned his back on you. He's not abandoned you. He is just as faithful to you today as he was the day that he saved you. And so I don't have all the answers to why you're going through what you're going through. But but, but God can be trusted. He can. Can you trust a God who, though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor? Can you, can you trust a God who emptied himself and became nothing for you? Can you trust a God who demonstrated his great love for you and that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you? Can you trust a God who put on human flesh and endured more pain than any of us could possibly endure or even imagine? Can you trust a God who, who bore our sins on the cross If you you can't trust a God like that, you have nothing to cling to in this life. Well, this table that we're going to come to in just a moment, it's designed by God to cry out to you, trust me, trust me. Remember, remember the enormity of my love for you. Remember how, how I can take the the worst kind of suffering and the worst kind of sorrow and 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 yet I have sovereign control over the, the greatest act of suffering, my son's death. Remember what was accomplished. Remember that it is finished. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember me. Remember, remember. Let's pray. Lord, would you help us remember as we come to the table in a moment, may we be moved from this scene in Bethlehem to, to the cross and to remember what was accomplished there and then to go to the empty grave and go to seeing Christ exalted and even with the hope that you will return. Lord, all those things are certain in, in a sense because of this little boy born to Ruth and Boaz in Bethlehem, your faithfulness worked out in the ordinary stuff of life, but all, all working, all part of your plan to accomplish our salvation, which is what we come and remember together. Help us to remember, help us to savor, help us to trust you more. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.